Well, hey there. Hello. Um, you might be wondering where I've been if you just listen to this podcast channel. I've been doing another audiobook. Yeah, and as it gets to the end, it kind of takes over all the hours. Because uh, audiobooks, they actually take more hours than there are to spend. That's somehow they get done. It's like a magic trick. Anyhow, I, you know what I have not done in a while is when I release an audiobook, I, I want to put the first chapter here on the podcast so that uh, people can have a little sample of it and see if they want to get it. And it's also, this is the wildest audiobook I've ever done. So ladies and gentlemen, here it is, the opening chapter of Chompy's 89. Chompies, 89, part one. In a drawer, buried deep in a drawer, and by drawer, I mean a you know, cardboard box in my closet, there is a screenplay which I wrote many years ago. And for those many years after, many, let's just say, all the years in the world, it is and was an embarrassment, and so it stayed buried there deep in a closet box and I vaguely remembered it was there you know like I vaguely remember where pipes from my toilet lead to bring to sewer ocean it's vague something there's no need to confirm I can just stay vaguely aware of it because if unpleasant things kept out of sight then you do the thing humans are supposed to do do not go out of your way to emphasize the negative. There's enough of that all over this screwed up world already. No, no. You look upward into the sunny pleasantness that the, this world will afford us on occasion. And that's a good strategy for, you know, lets other people live in peace, not to mention you yourself. And you get a little bite-sized happiness. So why open cardboard closet boxes if you do not absolutely need to? Why not just go outside Look at some dogs sleeping for a frisbee. That's always good. Never a bad time to look at a dog doing that. Well, maybe if you've been shot, you know, an emergency of some kind. But you, you know that. However, the curious thing is this screenplay. It was there, in that box, and I had not destroyed it. I did not burn the evil manuscript which you know how it works in horror movies. Something bad's in a box at the start of the movie, whatever it is, and you just try to ignore it. And you're just like, oh, that's nothing. And you do not destroy it. Then by the end of the movie, you're pretty much doomed or at least badly injured. So it being in a box, all that meant was maybe there's gonna be a time it, is, it escapes and hurts me. I mean, somehow it would do that, get out of the box. For, you know, you don't, if you do not throw screenplay into a furnace, then you're asking for it. I mean, aren't you? Well, it wasn't I. Here, take a sip of something. I'm gonna do the same. I don't know if you could hear that. It's a little free as me. You remember the movie Gremlins? Now, I loved that movie. I really loved it. You know, back when I was young, 
Doing a little stupider. But it, okay, all those creatures, the wrecking a snowy little town on Christmas Eve. You know, such a thing would be both horrifying and kind of wonderful because it's, it's still pretty because it's Christmas. So it's a grotesque kind of cheerful, that movie. Imagine an evil clown that is actually kind of entertaining. Uh, it, that's a possible combination. You know, he's got some funny lines. He's scaring you, but he's making noises and you're going, oh, okay, that's cute. I don't know. But yeah, this Gremlins movie was big in the 80s. Big. Some biggity big names got involved. I think Spielberg was on a list of executive producers. And that is 80s boffo, baby. It, it's done. It leaves the theaters, right? And all the little gremlin ripoff movies started appearing. All those scruffy ragamuffin imitations coming out of dumpsters and alleyways, like the orphans in Oliver Twist, and they're bumming their way into theaters and video shops. And I don't even remember the order they came out in or what countries they all came from. But yeah, Italy. A couple of them, definitely. Let me see. Um, there was ghoulies, critters, munchies, hobgoblins, and more. I'm sure I'm forgetting. There like 10 more. There were so many. And they kept getting worse and worse. You thought they couldn't get any worse and they got worse. Like, you start it at the top, critters, it's not all that bad for low-budget 80s. But by the time you got the hobgoblins, you, you, you don't know what to do. You write a letter to your congressman saying, hey, congressperson, hey, someone out there just made hobgoblins. What the hell are you doing with our tax dollars? You're just letting that person run around free doing hobgoblins. With this special police force for that sort of thing. Find the hobgoblins guy right now, drag him off to jail and burn every copy of that movie, and then maybe, maybe let him out of jail in 20 years if he swears to never make, watch, or think of another movie ever again. Just let him go put horseshoes on horses or whatever. Go live with the Amish like I want to do secretly. Well, not really. Or else I'm not voting for you again. Remember, all that was the letter to the congressperson. Okay, because think of it. The letter to the congressperson is finished. Think of it. Just think of what these movies were. Little creature dolls attacking people. Cheapy movie studios were all over that. Oh my God, what could be easier? What could cost less money? Like a valley girl. Oh my God, oh my God. But what could cost less money than an action sequence in a living room with a person holding a crazy-looking puppet against their neck and slamming around into lamps? And other furniture that the room probably already had in it when they set up the film. They didn't, you know, just whatever's in the room's in the room. Ever been to a thrift store? Lamps are almost free. You could smash a dozen, and it would cost you maybe 20 bucks. So, way back when, as a teenage Albert, who had a fake ID that said I was in my 20s and came in handy all the time. And I was getting drunk one night on a cheap beer that I do not see around anymore, uh, Henry Weinhardt's. And I'm watching Gremlins on videotape, the first movie, the big one. I had a revelation, a religious beer moment. You know those, I'm sure. I decided I would save that entire genre by me also making a Gremlins-type rip-off movie, but that would bring back the glory of the first Gremlins. And once again, it would unleash. What it would do 
Okay, it would, there's a potential, a true potential of gremlin insanity and impact that a movie can have. And the first one did, and all the ripoffs did not, but I would bring that, I would bring that level back. And I told people, Chompies, that's a working title for my movie, that I was going to make it something way better. But as I'm looking at it, you know, right now, on the front page of that old screenplay, and it's in all caps, because you have to do uh, all caps on screenplay title pages all the time. Now, it's, it was going to be called Chompies. Now, forever Chompies. Because that's, it's one of the only words left like that when you want from me, right? You know, I, not you. I mean, we're friends. But I mean, those other people who were giving me a hard time throughout my life. Because let's see. Let's just look at our options here. Biters, that's a porno thing. Masticators is, it's just make people laugh. And I wanted this to be serious-ish. I wrote it, the screenplay. So I wrote it and it was, as, and I wrote it as a direct, almost intellectual response to Munchies and Hobgoblins, those specifically, because they were so bad. Those filmmakers, if you could even call them that, will go down in history as criminals, kind of. If people ever remember who they are, which they will not, so I guess, no. They will not go down in history, period. But also, you know, calling it Chompies, I wanted to show with this movie that you could have a title that was, okay, a bit exploitational and ridiculous, like calling a shark movie Big Gulp or something. And it could still be good. I, I, see, I just had to believe that you could have a title like Chompies and still do a good movie because I was locked into that title format by precedence. I couldn't, I could not call it, you know, Darkened Eyes Over Denmark. Not that it takes place in Denmark. It's just I had to, I, what I had to do was the one word that was also the name of the creature for it to be one of those movies, officially. And of course, I'm also looking for the bigger thing, right? Just to get a movie made any movie and start on that road to being famous. So maybe, yeah, it wasn't quite the intellectual rebuttal I had planned. It's very complicated. And as you shall hear, but you are saying to me, okay, Albert, you have got an unproduced screenplay in a box and you live in California. Was it? So why not just say you live in California? Having an unproduced screenplay in a box or drawer, but you know, either, is part of the definition of living in California. Every single, or hard drive. That's right, because you don't print a lot of scripts now, you just have them on hard drives. Every single person there in California over the age of four has at least tried doing a screenplay. And, or I'd, I would guess 70% has, have finished at least one or two. So yeah, you got one, Albert. Of course you do. Well, yes. A screenplay in a box back from when I thought all things were possible. When I was going to work my way up to big-time Hollywood player. I do have one of those. Or at least medium-sized Hollywood player. And like nearly all screenplays in California, it was going to stay there in that box as a little personal tombstone of embarrassment and sadness. But like even worse, like a fallen over tombstone because it's flat, laying flat. But then, quite recently, in August of 2020, at around 9 p.m. about that, 
I drove through parts of Hollywood and Beverly Hills, having taken a dose of what we call magical mushroom. We call it that, me and you and everyone. And I'm in my little economy car that I also use for food delivery, so it smells like garlic noodles all the time. I drive, I was driving down Sunset Boulevard after that dose, and I drove down Wilshire Boulevard. And those were a couple of the big boulevards I used to walk down as a quiet little punk kid in sneakers with ratty hair. Those same boulevards, and they looked the same. And driving that night on the shroom, I decided I should listen to some music that was on the radio back in those days. Right? And these songs I played, they caused a reaction. Mushroom reaction. Uh, you know me, right? I would not recommend you drive on mushrooms any more than I would recommend driving you on LSD. You, you drive on LSD, Adderall, Xanax, Mescaline, or whiskey, or all five together, as life will arrange on occasion via randomness back in your younger days and in some of your older days that you have now. Of course I would not recommend any of that. Of course. Of course. But the difference between recommending a thing and not recommending a thing is just, it's a couple of syllables. It's barely any air noise come whatsoever. Sure, there's mental state involved, but isn't there always burn for, okay. But see, look, if I took, if I take a dose of mushroom that is fairly substantial, but right below the amount that gives you that freaky melty world of visual bonkers, I can drive because world looks the same. It looks exactly as it's supposed to look and I can navigate through it in my car. But what it starts to gnaw away at, even when everything looks the same, like little munchy ratatouille mice, it starts eating away the wires that connect my Albert emotions to my rugged all-weather Albert emotional inhibitor. Those wires are very necessary and when they, the little ratatouille mice munch them away, I suddenly have unfiltered feelings spilling all over the place out of these wires. And here's what happened during that automotive journey through some of the Los Angeles spots of my youth. Taking another sip of coffee. Sorry. This part's gonna get intense. I started with Oingo Boingo. And it gave me chills to hear that until I remembered this was one of their songs I didn't really like. So I put on some other ones they did. And oh, now real chills. And I'm going past dark Beverly Hills houses down to Wilshire Boulevard. And those houses and those streets are very dark. I don't know why they keep them so dark. You see, I walked up and down Wilshire so much. Even went to school right there off Wilshire at Horace Mann Elementary. You could look it up. Because, see, we lived in this cheap apartment over in East L.A., of course. You know, I'm, I grew up really poor. But it was right on the border of the Beverly Hills School District. It was just this weird district that stuck a little bit off into East L.A. down Wilshire. And so I was just on the right side where I got to go to Beverly Hills schools. So I got to go there, rich kids around me, little scraggly me, and I fell in love with little rich girls who rejected me and played Atari and, and uh, what other ones, like ColecoVision and living rooms, rich kids. And now I put on this song 
and seeing those sidewalks again. Oh, man. Oh, man, those same sidewalks. I walked home on every day after day, little, skinny, ratty, nothing, Albert, at the age where everything was ridiculous. And I put, and, and I'm driving through by, past those sidewalks, and I put on a song, this song, by the Pretenders. And it made me scream cry. Ever scream cry as an adult. It is terrifying and so delicious. So good. Oh, oh I, trust me, it's both those things. Because I wanted to scream cry. The, the mushroom made me say, made me decide, scream cry as an active choice. You're gonna scream cry. So I did it. I let it all rush from me like I'm crying out my entire life. Just howling with agony of everything I remembered, howling out of me all at once. And the tears gushed. They, they it's like uh, they couldn't come out any faster. And they're pouring over my cheeks, so warm, and down my neck, and soaked my shirts like I was in a shower. I was soaked with tears. It can actually happen, because I did it. And what I looked like to anyone who would have seen me, I could hardly imagine if anyone saw me that night. What they saw was a man living and dying and crying and very calmly obeying traffic lights because, you know, I can drive on things. I shouldn't, but, well, that night I did. And then the song was over, and I was a sweaty, freaky mess, breathing, panting, and, you know, still puttering along in my car inside that shell of old Honda Civic, moving through night air like a floating coffin on wheels, just quiet. And it made me think, yeah, Cars. I, I should put on The Cars. The Cars, my favorite band from back then. Maybe the best band no one ever talks about anymore because of the superficial nature of their songs. And as I'm listening now to The Cars, I drove past La Brea Tarpits. And it was like those statues, the elephant-looking mammoths, were sinking into Tarpits. Look it up online if you don't know these statues. And um, there's, now they're sinking, and they're screaming my songs up at the sky. And I love the smelliness of that black tar. But they are the most suffering statues in the whole world. And now they're yodeling my favorite songs as they were dying. And I'm driving past them. And then my Honda went into where it just disappeared in the darkness. Of, you see, there's a place where Wilshire Boulevard goes to die. Because it also has a place to die in these road construction projects that never end. And I got detoured off Wilshire because of them into somewhat dangerous looking just like in Bonfire of the Vanities, which should be the next book you absorb after this one. And my brain has that black tar of death on it from driving past the tar pits, because all I feel now is these voices I'm hearing right now singing at me, they are dead. The, both the vocalists from that band, Rick Ocasek and Benjamin Orr, they are both dead. They're dead now, but this is them alive. Back when little kid me thought I would never die. And I'm not sure if I could explain this properly, but I wanted to know which was the real them. The voices or the dead bodies that are buried somewhere. Scientifically, only one of them could be real. So, that, and that was a mushroom thought, granted. But back when I was a kid, those guys were permanent adult people. Do you know what I mean? Especially Rick. They were permanent adult. They were not going to ever go anywhere. So now if they could die and just be gone, gone, gone. And these songs, these songs, I did songs of dead men. So how do dead men sing? 
Why do dead men sing? Because we're all dead on our way there. Or is, it, is that the same thing? Does it even matter that I'm driving in Los Angeles right now? Or I was pulling a boat with a rope in 1772? I am inevitably a dead man in either situation. And sooner rather than later, you and I both know I got about five years maximum left. Probably more like two, honestly. And then anything I'd leave behind, like this audiobook, or even the one about fraggles. So what? So what? And yet, it's the biggest what in the world. And I don't even know why that is. Why would it matter to Rick and Benjamin that these songs are getting played by a crying Albert in his little Honda car on Wilshire Boulevard one night? And yet it would. It would. It just would. Even in oblivion, the backward arrow matters what you've done. It has to, doesn't it? The joy or suffering or whatever, boredom, wonderment, that's over, that's ended. But the events that happen can never be undone because they're behind you. They could just get swept under the rug of eternity, but they're there. They happened. They really happened. Wouldn't they be there in the past? Is the past even a place? I don't know. You know I've been trying to make Muppet movies, unofficial Muppet movies, and they always fall apart. In the, they fall apart in that particular bouncy, sweating, climbing fences, accidentally setting fires kind of way that things do when you introduce amphetamine and alcohol as a substitute for sleep and deliberation. But yet, but yet, the, my Muppet movies still have the kind of old school Muppet magic that Disney could not buy with all the iPhones in China. I, I don't know why, but it's true, they do. And I'll never finish them, but they still have it. Because they were naive and sincere in a way that post-Henson Muppets can never be. They're shills now, right? They're just advertising things, even when they're advertising themselves. But if that's true, and it is, then will that original dream, that very first movie dream scheme I had, why did I just bury it away in a box? Like it's just another dead rock star that no one ever heard of? So not dead rock star, dead rock, nobody, anonymous person. You know, like the way I'm gonna die dead. Nobody comedy person. But maybe, this is me thinking on the mushrooms after all the sweat and tears had faded and I'm like a speedy ghost on the highway just heading back to my apartment in a straight line. Maybe, because I wrote that screenplay back when I believed all things were magically possible in my life and career, well then, maybe it still had the magical ingredient inside it. Belief, belief, that unstoppable confidence flavor that things have, they have that when they are destined to be made. I, they must, right, they have to. Destined to become a dream come true, like all the Disney songs that bother me so much. But now I'm the Disney song, baby. Yeah, I think I used to have that exact feeling of belief, you know, of confidence. And it's been gone for, it's like I'm falling down an endless flight of stairs when I tried doing one of the Muppet movies because I get drunk and on speed and when I do it and shouting all the way down, yeah, baby, woo, king of stairs. Can't stop me, I'm falling down these stairs to the top of the world down here at the bottom in some way. the last of the coffee. 
Now you're gonna get to be the judge of this because this is the story of the past and present and future of Chompies 89 and still all caps, baby, like on the screenplay cover. I actually finished the first version in 1990, but I feel like Chompies 89 is now the correct title because I need people to know it's the very last of the great 80s thriller movies, no matter when it gets made. That certain type of fun movie, they just, they, you know, to speak in a general sense, Raiders of the Lost Ark was, or The Hitcher, the one they did in the 80s, or Muppets Take Manhattan, or Big Trouble in Little China, almost, not quite that one, that one's a little too goofy, but, you know, before action thrillers got all boohoo, uh, the last, this is Chompies, the la 89, Chompies 89, the last and best movie of the 80s gremlin genre, which you probably did not even know was a genre. And, uh, yep, it is. Ta-da, okay. <laughs> there you have it, the uh, opening chapter of the latest audiobook, Chompies 89. And uh, if you're interested, you can get it at nevergotfamous.com. Um, it is the strangest, deepest, and wildest audiobook I've ever done. I don't know where to go from there, to be honest. Um, I don't know, maybe like a real audiobook. One of these eight-hour things with no music that you listen to when you're on an a airliner. any case... Also, if you're interested, I'm doing a new podcast over at uh, the Patreon called Albert University. And if you go to nevergotfamous.com, you see how to get to the Patreon. And look, it's not like I'm trying to make you buy everything I do uh, to listen to it, because I do free stuff still. But um, what can I say? I don't know how to fight back against the Google boys unless I put stuff up for sale. Because every dollar that comes to me is a dollar out of their evil clutches, is kind of how I feel. And uh, if I worked it out on the chalkboard, it'd probably be true, you know. Anyhow, well, thanks for listening, and uh, we'll do this again soon, I'm sure. <laughs>